everybody who follows AI has to have noticed that there are these two extreme camps, people who think that uh, AI is going to usher in this golden age of humanity and there'll be no hunger and there'll be no greed, and other people who think it's an existential threat to to, to us all, it's going to kill us all. And, and that's a wide range of opinions. It, it's unlike the question of like, well, when will we get to Mars? You know, well, maybe 2030, maybe 2080, but nobody's saying tomorrow or in 45,000 years. Like, and that's the range of these views on AI. And I wanted to understand what it was that some people believed that other people didn't. Hi, everyone. My name is Lauren Hawker Saffer, and this is Redefining AI, a tech podcast that focuses on key narratives that help people explore artificial intelligence, machine learning, insight engines, and the insight era. In this episode, I've been joined by Byron Rees. Byron is an Austin-based entrepreneur with a quarter of a century of experience building and running technology companies. He's a well-recognized authority on AI, and he holds a number of technology patents. Byron is also a futurist with strong conviction that technology will help bring about a new golden age of humanity. He's the author of four technology books with his work being featured in multiple news outlets. As we started to understand, Byron is an impressive personality, and I'm looking forward to discussing the fourth age with him today, especially as he, like myself, believes that technology is and will remain what people use to improve their productivity. I'm also curious as to how he remains so optimistic about the fourth turn of change and how the change in technological landscape can create multi-billion dollar opportunities for organizations. Byron, it is a pleasure all the way from Austin. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. It's really lovely to have you here. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing really well. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that our guests are curious to hear a little bit about you and what has brought you to this particular point in your own adventures, Byron? Well, um, I may be the least interesting part of what I have to talk about. Like I uh, graduated from university in the 90s and I moved to the Bay Area to, you know, be a part of, of that. Uh, but then I, I used to watch Star Trek and I read a quote once and it was Gene Roddenberry, the creator, and he said that in the future, there'll be no hunger and there'll be no greed and all the children will know how to read. And I wondered if that was true or if it just rhymed. And, <laughs> uh, and so I was very um, curious why the future happens the way it does. And that's what a futurist is. They, they don't like prognosticate, but try to understand why, why one thing happens and not another. And, uh, and the only way you get insight into that is by going into the past. So I really write mostly about the past, and I just try to. And if you think about it, that's what AI is, right? It's data about the past. We look for patterns in it and use those patterns to make predictions or into the future. And that's kind of what a futurist is. Mm -hmm. So would you say then? I mean, you write about the past, but you look into the future. You try to understand the future. Do you live in the future? Do you live in the past, or do you live in the present? I don't know. I mean, my. Uh, my wife and I have four children that we homeschool, and uh, and that 
is an exercise in thinking about the future because you realize they're going to be in the job market, maybe, I don't know, till you're 2100 or something, really. And so what do you teach somebody today that would be useful in the year 2100? Um, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I mean, admirable, like homeschooling four kids. I have one child of my own and uh, I've always envisioned like what I do partly homeschooler, obviously in the evening um, yeah. to encourage extracurricular activities and homeschooling as well. It is quite, I mean, getting that balance between the authority of being able to transfer knowledge and, and, and teaching your own children and then changing into the role of a caregiver, a, a father, I mean, everything else that comes with that. Um, it is something that requires a, a good amount of balance. Like, how do you find that balance? Well, I credit more of it to my wife than to me. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it maybe we should have put one of the four in regular school, like a controlled experiment, you know, we could see how that one turned out versus the other three, but we didn't. And, um, uh, I would say, as a parent, like the most important thing is to like teach your kids to be good people, and you want to see that they're mentally engaged in whatever they're doing. It doesn't really matter what it is. Uh, you want to just see that every all you know all the neurons firing, and then uh, I don't know, and and you have a whole lot of trust in them that. Uh, they don't know how the world operates, but they're, they're usually, you know, begin uh, life with a, with a in a really good uh, place, like in terms of optimism and uh, possibility. And uh, they, you know, about the future they're going to grow up into. Mm -hmm. And keeping them challenged and obviously firing up these these neurons. We're talking about cognition and cognition seems to be of importance to you. Um, if we go, I mean, we mentioned in the introduction that you've released several books now, Byron, two of which we intend to touch upon today, The Fourth Age and Stories, Dice and Rocks That Think. Firstly, what motivates you to write? And did technology play a role in this motivation? I mean, more like, you know, access to outlets, the internet, opportunities to share and communicate. I would say I, I write about... Uh, things I'm interested in. So most of the time when I start a book, like Stories, Ice, and Rocks, I think most of the material in it I don't know when I go into the book. And um, I, I have a lot of fact checkers who, who who are like a safety net under that. But they, um, yeah, so uh, I, I don't usually know what I'm, so I, I pursue my own interest, just like I was talking about with your kids. In the end, you just want to see them doing something they're passionate about. Like the people that, I know who are happiest are, are uh, doing things they, they want to do. And I like figuring things out. Like stories began as a book when I watched a Werner Herzog documentary about the cave at Chauvet. And, and that got me interested in like, well, where did that come from? And then, uh, I mean, just kind of one thing leads to the other. Oftentimes I write chapters for books. I don't even know what the book is going to be. And I, mm. I would say I probably write more that, I, that way more that doesn't get published. Than the, than the little bit that comes out in the books. Because in the end, you know, I want to write about these things I'm interested in, but in the end, you're trying to draw a common thread through them and figure out like, well, what does that teach me other than about that thing itself? Yeah, and that would probably have been my next question. So, I mean, first we've got the fourth age and then stories, dice and rocks that think. 
what is the central premise of both and what do you want your readership to take away for from both of those if they are interlinked in some in some way through the narration the fourth age is a philosophy book about artificial intelligence i'm not supposed to say that because that doesn't boost sales usually uh, and i hope it doesn't read like a philosophy book but that's really um what it is and the opening sentences of that book tell why I wrote it, which is everybody who follows AI has to have noticed that there are these two extreme camps, people who think that uh, AI is going to usher in this golden age of humanity and there'll be no hunger and there'll be no greed, and other people who think it's an existential threat to to, to us all. It's going to kill us all. And, and that's a wide range of opinions. It, it's unlike the question of like, well, when will we get to Mars? You know, well, maybe 2030, maybe 2080, but nobody's saying tomorrow or in 45,000 years. Like, and that's the range of these views on AI. And I wanted to understand what it was that some people believed that other people didn't. And it turns out that um, a lot of it, I mean, there's one central question that it boils down to, which is, are people machines? If people are machines, then Someday we'll build a mechanical person and every two years it'll double in capability. And if people are not machines, uh, then no machine can ever do what a person does. I used to have a podcast about artificial intelligence and I would interview all these people about it. And, and I would always ask them, like, do you believe general intelligence is possible? Mm -hmm. 97 of 100 said yes. And only three. Really? Mm -hmm. only, well, these are, these are AI people. And, yeah. these are, uh, and only three said no. And I'm I'm in the no camp. The fourth age isn't trying to convince anybody of anything. I, I don't I'm not trying to pursue, you know, but for the record, that's what I am. I don't I don't believe we're people I don't believe we're machines. And and you don't even have to go particularly spiritual to have that belief. You don't have, you know, we have these brains, we don't understand how they work, and they give rise to these minds that are emergent, like my mind, I'm creative, but none of my cells are creative. So somehow th these emergent properties come out. And then I have something called consciousness, which means I can experience the universe. Uh, a thermometer can measure temperature, but mm -hmm. it can feel warm. And I can. And and I have to think those things are wrapped up in intelligence. And I'm not convinced we can make that in a fab. I don't have that much faith. Interesting. There's so many questions that have come out of that. So first of all, like going back to, you mentioned that the fourth age is a philosophy book about AI. And you said that it wouldn't boost sales. Is that because people are not interested in the philosophical aspect or the turn of philosophy on AI? Or why is that? A philosophy book about AI sounds like chloroform in print, even to me. Uh, like, oh my gosh, that sounds boring. Like, philosophy books sound terrible. I mean, I've tried to like write it to be engaging. I mean, but that's what it really is. It asks, um, it tries to answer the, the questions like, are, are, is automation going to take all the jobs? Well, mm -hmm. again, that just boils down to a philosophical question. Well, you know, well, in fact, actually, are we machines? If we're machines, then eventually the machines are going to be better at doing our jobs than us. If we're not machines, then we're not. And so that's the sense it's a philosophy book. Kierkegaard is never quoted in it, or uh, Spinoza, or anything like that, but it's still fundamentally that. And then 
you're mentioning out of the the hundred people that you questioned uh, around if general AI will ever be possible. So ninety seven of those said yes, and three said no. The three that said no, did they pertain or stem from a certain faculty or thought camp? One, one of them said, "Look, a neuron." may be more complicated than a supercomputer. It may be, it may require, um, it may it, it may operate at the Planck level, right? Like that's the grain of the universe. That's, that's the pixels of the universe. That's as low as you get. You can't cut anything down there in half. And, and if a, if a supercomputer, if every neuron you have is more powerful than a supercomputer and it operates at that level, then your chances of building that are low. And then one of the guests said, machines don't have souls. And so that's a range of opinions about why we're not uh, machines. And you said you're in the no camp. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, yes. I, I think I'm in the no camp as well. Um, it's very unusual because when I when I speak in front of audiences and I say, who here believes you're a machine? So 97% of my AI people say yes. The general public is about 20% believe they're machines. Uh, so it's a huge disconnect. And so when those people who believe they're machines make predictions, it's with that core assumption. And if you don't know that, then those predictions can be very, very frightening because they know more than I do, right? But that may be true, but they may have false beliefs about the nature of things, which would be forgivable. Like, it's what we try to figure out as people. Mm -hmm. what, is, what, is the, what is the nature of all this? Yeah, that's very true. So who's your ideal reader then? Or does it change depending on the narrative from book to book? I mean, you mentioned that sometimes you start with writing chapters and then it develops into a book, but you must have, I mean, in the sense of Absolutely. when you write to express, you know, you're writing to a certain ideal or optimal, who is your ideal reader? So my ideal reader is somebody who uh, I would like to hang out with. And, and I never feel like I'm bringing down revealed truth from Mount Sinai and, and I had the tablets and, and I give them like, not at all. It's like, I've worked really hard on understanding this thing. I'm dying to tell you what it is. And then when I'm done, I want, I want to hear what, you know, you've been working on trying to figure out. So it's very much somebody that I think appreciates uh, honest inquiry and uh, has a curious mind mm -hmm. and willing to, uh, to listen to, to, to what I've been thinking about and will want to share what, what they've been thinking about. I get wonderful emails all the time, all today, today, that from people who, um, you know, they, they, they apply what they're working on to something in the book. And I love that. I love that because it really does take on a conversation. At that, it feels like a conversation at that point. And is that why you write then? I don't. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've been having a little bit of a crisis about that lately. Uh, and, and whether I'm going to write anymore or not, I really don't know. Uh, 
it's one of the strangest things that like, I mean, I'm sure nobody really cares, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a compulsion to do it. Mm. But then, you know, I, as I said, I'm 33 days away from my next deadline of the kind of books I write. If I wrote fiction, you know, maybe you can tell your story and put it aside for a month and come back to it and keep telling it. My books are not like that. They, I have to keep like all this stuff in my head at once. And it just, over, I find it overwhelming. And I just don't know if I'm going to do it anymore. Okay. Well, hopefully you do. I mean, we enjoy reading your books. And I think that part of writing a book as well um, is, you know, making demands, not only on, your, on yourself as a writer, but on the reader and also taking care of the reader. How do you try to get that balance as well when you're writing? What do you mean? Like, um, obviously, when when writing a book, you're trying to make demands in the sense that you want to pose questions. I mean, part of the um, the the this part of um, your book, let's say, in chapter five. So, in chapter five and throughout your book, you refer back to the three foundational questions of. What artificial will be uh, artificial intelligence will be capable of? Whether computers can become conscious, and if ro robots will take all of our jobs. Mm -hmm. And I would say that in doing this, you're obviously critically asking your readers, you know, to think about this, and this is part of you making demands on them to actually contemplate and think about all of these important questions that are foundational um, to your narrative. But how do you also take care of them in the sense? to make sure that you're taking them with you? Do you have any techniques or is it something that just comes naturally in progression and writing? I don't know. I mean, I would say that I, I always think about my reader. Mm -hmm. I never try to sell them anything. I never try to persuade them of something because I think that um, if, if, if it's an open question, I got, I, I mean, like, I write in uh, stories. I've mentioned something about Homo erectus, this, cute, you know, this creature that lived, and, and I have very different views about what they were capable of. And and again, they're minority views. Like I'm not in the majority on on that. And and I, so I I feel I must you know, like always point that out. I even quote people uh, who are directly opposed to it, you know, by name and title. Uh, I never argue with that person in the book. I let them have their their say. And then, uh, so I, I try to keep a, a high amount of um, of honesty, like with me to, to my reader, that I'm not, uh, I don't know, that I'm not presenting a, a carefully constructed little view mm. of mine. And then they go off and tell people, oh, Erectus was like this. And then the other people are like, nobody thinks Erectus. And, and then they're like, that's what, he, but so if I, I feel like if, if if, if I'm just honest about my learning process and about where I'm out of the consensus, then uh, I hope my reader will be forgiving of, of that. Like, they don't feel like I'm trying to pull a fast one. I also try to put a lot of humor in the books because uh, most of these books read, you, you can't really tell the voice, in my experience, you can't really tell the voice of one person from another when you're pulling those books off the shelf. And I didn't, I think maybe the reader is supposed to forget their reading at some level. They're just kind of absorbing it. Yeah, okay, and, and my books don't read like that at all. I mean, they're definitely me, and I'm. I use popular culture references all the time. I uh, I, I try to be uh, 
humorous and funny. And, and I'll even go down tangents, which normally authors won't. But, and boy, the bar is high on that because it sure better be interesting. If you're going off topic to tell your reader something, you can do that, but you got to make sure it's like, they're not like, why in the world did he just tell me that? <laughs> like, so I go on digressions that I think are fun. Uh, I used to footnote them all, but I, I think those ruin the flow of the reading. If your eyes are popping up and down, they ruin the audio book about where to put it. So now I just leave them all in the narrative. There was a lot of humor cut from the fourth age because somebody believed it detracted from the gravitas. But uh, nowadays, I, I would have left it all in. Interesting. So if we look at those three foundational questions that we highlighted of what our artificial intelligence will be capable of, whether computers can become conscious, and if robots will take um, all of our jobs. You mentioned that at the dawn of the fourth age, these questions have become immensely practical. And we also spoke, obviously, about the implications that it has on not only our generation, but future generations. I mean, we spoke about the homeschooling and obviously, you know, thinking about what future generations are going to do in 2100. What does this shift mean in the sense of thinking about these questions for younger generations as well? I have so much confidence in the younger generation. I, I think that they really are wonderful. I mean, everybody I know today who's young has a cause or something that they believe in. And they're very socially conscious. And all of these things that when I was in high school in the 80s, I just don't remember. I mean, I think they're wonderful. Unfortunately, they've come into a world which has peddled uh, fright to them and to everybody else, not just them. But there's, uh, I kind of chalk it up to the to the 24-hour news cycle. You know, <clears throat> what in your water is killing you tune in uh, after these messages to find out like uh and and i think if you just get that relentless things are going to be bad 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 like over and over and over and over you can't help but to internalize it and i am an optimist um uh, for reasons i'm happy to to go through i can tell you the only thing only thing that will uh keep an optimistic future from happening is if nobody believes in it because it's work, right? It's work. And so the minute everybody's like, I'm not going to. I recently, uh, you know, when, when they built St. Peter's in Rome, the, instead of paintings, they used mosaics, little tiles. And then they, um, they got all the artisans to do overage of the tiles that they put back. So for the next thousand years, they would be able to repair them using mm -hmm. the exact same tiles. Uh, so the colors were the same and everything. And I, I just earlier this year had an opportunity to go back there and open the drawers and, and see those handwritten notes from the 1500s of the artisans and uh, and realize that's a wow, way to yeah. the, the, the Swedish government a few hundred years ago planted an entire island with oak trees uh, so that they would, in 200 years when they were mature, be able to build, you know, the kinds of ships that they would need to do it. See, they didn't get exactly what was going to happen in 200 years, but they were thinking about it. I was just thinking about when they put in the um, the sewer system in London, uh, which was a big ordeal. Like they, I mean, it was a big thing. And they figured the guy who was in charge of it, he said, okay, what's the biggest it could possibly need to be ever? 
And they told him, I don't remember, 36 inches across. So to say that, a meter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he said, you know what? We're only going to get one chance ever to do this. So make it twice that size. And they did. And then the, the future where people are flushing their nappies and all that down, they can deal with it because they believed in the future and they believed that. Sure, yeah. Uh, and, and the minute you lose that, the minute you're like, doesn't matter. Then we're all, why polish brass on a sinking ship, right? Like, why bother? That's that's the only thing we have to have to be careful of, I think. And I think that that's something that you do well in the book, in the fourth age as well. I mean, in the book, you tell us about, you know, how we got to the point of the fourth age and how rather than what we should think about the topics we'll all be facing very soon. So some of these topics are like, you know, machine consciousness, automation, employment, creative computers, radical life existence, artificial life, AI ethics, the future of warfare, super intelligence and the implications of extreme prosperity. Now, you're in teaching about this rather how, you know, this how rather than the what, how would you personally summarize this how thinking that you're encouraging for our listeners when it pertains to those topics? I, I it, what I said earlier about all, most of your thinking almost will always be about the past and how things turned out the way they did. And so <clears throat> there was a time uh, 60, 70,000 years ago where we, we think humans got down to a thousand mating pairs and that was it. And uh, nobody would have bet on us. And somehow, somehow, uh, we became the preeminent species. And that, that's really uh, shocking. And so you have to say, how did that happen? And how did we do that? Also, you have to realize that we were a timid, timid little species because it, it served us well. Like, um, if it would be better, it would be better to see a rock and mistake it for a bear and run away, like, oh, it's a bear, run, run, than to be an optimist and to see this thing and say, oh, it's probably just a rock. I'm sure it's a rock and get eaten by the bear. And so we're like these uh, timid, like, oh, it could be a bear. That could be a bear. And so we have this like innate fear of anything new. We have innate fear of all these things in the future. And at some point, you just, own that and you recognize it and you go okay my tendency is to be afraid of this you see <clears throat> if somebody had gone back in time 25 years from today the the beginning of the the internet uh, the the consumer internet right and and showed somebody a browser and said you know what in the future billions of people are going to use this thing what do you think that's going to do to jobs that person if they were far-sighted would say well i, I bet that um it's going to be really hard on the newspapers. They're probably going to go out of business. And the directories, the printed directories of phone numbers, that's gone. Mm-hmm. And the travel agents, they're going. And the stockbrokers, no more. We don't need them. And the and the, the, the stores, people are going to start buying their stuff online. And every single thing you would have listed would have been bad for jobs. But what you never would have, that person would never say, oh, my gosh, there's going to be Etsy, eBay, Twitter, Facebook, Google, Amazon, all of it, Uber, Airbnb, all of it, a million new companies. And that's always the challenge. It's, it's easy to see what it's going to destroy. And that's always, like, you're usually right. 
it's impossible to see what it's going to create. So you have to have faith that increasing people's productivity is always good. And if you don't think that, then you should suggest everybody work with one arm tied behind their back. Because what would happen? Um, you would need a lot more people to do anything. So you just created a bunch of jobs. However, their productivity is so low, they don't pay very much. On the other hand, if you could give everybody a third arm, increase their productivity, that's good. And um, and so I try to always just st stick to the basics and think of, of the underlying dynamic and what's really going on. I used to get in uh, disagreements with people on my podcast about the effect on jobs. Mm -hmm. And now I just ask a real basic question, which is, can you name one job that's been eliminated by technology in the last five years? Just one. I mean, I can't. Yeah, on the spot, it's quite hard to, to, to actually come up with one. <laughs> I'm I mean, sure there is. But that's the thing is, if, if, if it were killing all that stuff, then we would see it. And you can't name one. can't name one. They've been talking about truck drivers for like, I don't know how long. And the fact they always say x-ray technicians, that just tells you there's like one job that could actually happen. Um, but it's easier to be afraid of it because it's easy to see what will be destroyed. And then, and then, and then the media jumps in and they're like, well, a computer steal your job. And it's like, the computer's not stealing your job. It doesn't like break in at night and <laughs> change the HR records, right? I mean, it's all this language. And what they try to do is convince you, you will not be able to provide for yourself. You will not be able to provide for your family. You will not. Uh, you're going to be obsoleted. And that's the message. When it, it should be in a message of empowerment that you can now, if you hold a smartphone in your hand and it has some, medical app or something on it gardening will just be, be simple you're effectively like a brilliant gardener or at least a pretty good one <laughs> that's true but piece of technology just empowered you yes mm -hmm. and so it's just i think people are made i don't know i don't think it's conspiracy well why everybody seems to be trying to frighten people i don't think it's a conspiracy but i don't understand it and I don't know why people want to be. Yeah, I mean, that's two different um, sort of uh, threads that we could follow. And I think that it's obviously evident that you are very optimistic about um, about the productivity that can be encouraged with the implementation of technologies, especially when we're talking about, in particular, AI. The question is, though, how do you drive your own optimism and really ensure that people can benefit from your own personal optimism and see that technology is what people use to improve their productivity. I, I don't think I'm reflexively an optimist. I don't think that's my nature. I'm, I'm not just like Pollyannish yeah. about everything. Uh, oh, it'll all work out. Like that's, that isn't what I think. Um, and so every day I put my optimism on trial mm -hmm. every day I ask if it's warranted. Um, and, and all I try to do is say, you know, I only know three things, things get over the course of the last 10,000 years, things have gone pretty well for us as a species. Like we're up and to the right <laughs> in, in, in my parlance that, um, 
that's the first one. The second one is that technology is going to increasingly amplify what we're able to do. And that's good. And the third one is that people are good. People are good. Most people are good. And, and the reason I believe that, that's, first of all, I think that's self-evident because if, if everybody was out for themselves, we never would have gotten to this part. That's but very I'll true. You, I'll, I'll give you a real yeah. example. Yeah. I sold something on eBay very recently. And I packed it very carefully and double boxed it, shipped it to the person. And they filed a complaint and said, I had not sent them the item that I had just put a brick in the box and shipped it to them, which I did not put a brick in the box and ship it to them. And of course, eBay sided with them and said, well, you can't prove they got it, which is fine. But what I knew in that moment is like that almost never happens because if that ever happened, like 5% of the time. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. It wouldn't work. None of it would work. Credit cards wouldn't work. Nothing would work. And so that there's just that dude, you know, who's got my thing and, and he's in the minority and, and he always will be, always will be because people, we're, we're social and, and we, we, we have altruism and we try to help even perfect strangers. Like, no, I completely agree with 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 that sort of uh, philosophy and train and thought and outlook on life. And I do believe that it is something that has helped people through a lot of the trials and tribulations that have happened in the past few months. I mean, obviously, globally, there's been a lot of um, trying situations for a lot of people in different scenarios. And I think that one key consideration that can hold truth and that is evident in the development of history, if we look, as you mentioned, into the past and if we're looking into the future, it's the nature and the intrinsic desire of the majority of human beings to actually do good and and, and not evil. Um, I, I mean, it goes back to the question then that I would say that we started with, are, are um, people machines? And we could then contribute or collectively argue together or look at, you know, this one example of, you know, can a machine identify between good and bad and, you know, motion that into a positive direction as well. So before we we sort of close, um, I want to touch upon stories, dice and rocks that think how humans learn to see the future and shape it. What's this book about? That book is about what makes people different than animals because i'm really fascinated by that for by two reasons one why are we like so exceptional among all creatures on this planet there's like everything else in us mm-hmm. we're, we're basically like aliens to to them right like that's really what we and like why why is there just one why is there just one and second <clears throat> where are the species that are coming up where are, as I put in the book, where are the Bronze Age beavers? Where are the Industrial Age iguanas? Where are the penguin poets? Like, where are kind of the ones that, well, they're not there yet. Like, what what, what has, a, what has a, a dolphin done? Like, what do they have? I know they don't have the internet or telegraphs or mail or an alphabet or writing or anything. And, um, and I wanted to understand those two things. Why? Why it happens uh, that we're so different. And the, the first thing is that we can uh we know there's something called the future and we know there's something called the past and as strange as it may seem animals don't they live in the perpetual present Hmm. and they don't have episodic memory fascinating ways that they test this there may be a few animals that can think into the future 
hours, maybe, but I spent a lot of ink in the book trying to, to draw that distinction between us and them. I'm not down on animals at all. They may very well, uh, I'm sure they feel pain like we do. They are intelligent. They could very well be conscious. They could experience, I mean, all of that. But I'm very interested in their cognition. And I do think their cognition is completely different than ours. And that's the that's the interesting thing. So the book is begins about that. How are people and animals different? And, and, and when you get to that and you say, well, we can see the future. We can imagine the future. We understand that the way we do that is um, through little stories we tell ourselves every minute. Oh, I could get over there. I could change the lanes and do this. And, and then that might happen. Or I could get this down. I mean, like all of your life is you're kind of living in this uh, constant, like assessing the future. And then uh, we we wanted to do more than that. We wanted to predict the future, which know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. We were driven to do that. And that's about the invention of probability. And that uh, is dice. That's the middle section. Boy, that sounds like a boring topic. And I promise you it isn't. There's not an equation in the book. It's just storytelling about um, letters between Fermat and Pascal and the things they didn't know. Like, I think this is the coolest thing in the world. Or not the coolest, most interesting thing, which is uh, governments used to raise money by selling annuities. So you would give the government $100 and every year they would give you $10 until Mm -hmm. you died. Okay. Two guys walk in to buy an annuity. One's 20 and one's 80. Who should have to pay more for the annuity? Well, the young person, because they're going to live longer than the old person. (laughs) who probably may not even make it out of the office, right? They didn't know that. (laughs) Up until uh, mid-1600s, there was a belief that everybody had an equal chance of dying every year after you were no longer an infant. And, And if you think about it, in a world where death is capricious, like the donkey... Donkey could kick your head and kill you. Mm. Donkey may kick an 80-year-old person's head or a 20-year-old. You don't know. Uh, But the minute we came up with probability, one person could spend one afternoon walking around the cemetery just writing down the ages of people at death, and they could build an actuarial table and and make predictions about when you're going to die. And that's all of a sudden like you just changed death from capricious to, to math and uh, and things like that. That's what that book's about. And then the last chapter... Rocks that think, that's a, a last section, that's a metaphor for computers, which are rock silicon chips that think. And I that's the part about AI. And I ask, um, well, you know, our great tragedy as a species is that we die and everything we knew dies with us. Very little passes on, very little, very little. And there's kind of no way around that. But there will be in the future, not because we live longer, but oh, because okay. we've got sensors that are that record all this stuff, cause mm-hmm. and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. And over time, all the decisions you make, good and bad in your life, will be combined with those made by billions of other people and, and be used to advise people. And therefore, in the future, everybody's going to be smart, uh, more wise than the wisest person who ever lived because they're going to have the experience of, of billions of people before them. So that's what that book's about. It sounds fascinating and really enticing. And you also mentioned that only animals are immortal, don't you, in the book? I do, because they don't know they're going to die. Yeah, I think that's pretty, uh, I think it's pretty, uh, yeah. And, and, that's and that's, some- that's, 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 that was the price we had to pay to see the future in the past, to know 
there's going to be a future that we're yeah. not in. Yeah, yeah. Which is a, a poignant ending to the conversation. But that is something that obviously comes from SES, as you mentioned in the book, Jorge Luis uh, Borges. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that wasn't me. That was... Mm-hmm. So except from man, all creatures are immortal, for they are ignorant to death. Yeah. But we're living today and we've had a, a really wonderful discussion. Um, it's been great to have you here. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, between um, you and I, I've really enjoyed uh, reading your books. I, I love the way that you write. And I think that our listeners would profit from looking at one or many of uh, your writings. You've also got one coming out. What, what's it about? What's it called? Or are you I not allowed do. to disclose the information? No, I would love to. <laughs> it's going to be the... Uh... Do you know what a superorganism is? I'm trying to figure out, do most of my readers, are they going to know, even know the term superorganism? Superorganism. I've heard it, but I wouldn't be able to give you a definition of what it is. Good to know. So the idea is, you know, there are bees, Mm -hmm. uh, honeybees. I used to raise bees, and so there's a lot about bees in this book. Uh, And the the honeybee, that's a creature, like a honeybee. But all the honeybees can come together. That's an organism. All those honeybees can come together and make a beehive. And that is an organism, too. Interesting. Super Mm -hmm. organism. Mm -hmm. And it's different. Just like your cells don't have a sense of humor, but you do. The hive is a different creature than the bee. For instance, a bee is a cold-blooded creature. It cannot regulate its own body temperature. The beehive is warm-blooded. It holds its body temperature at 97 degrees. The bees work to cool and heat it to keep it Amazing, so it's yeah. a different animal. Now, here's the, question. here's the question. Do all people form a superorganism? Superorganism. That we are not, can't even perceive. And I call it um, agora. That's the name of the superorganism of humans. Uh, it's, it's after a Greek word for um, like the marketplace where it's noisy and all the activity and the government and the businesses and the doctors and the Yeah, debate. beautiful oh, analogy. And that's, that's us. That's our collective. And so my question that I ask in this book is, last thing I'll say on it, what is Agora? Is it like a metaphor for mm-hmm. understanding the division of labor? Or is it a system like a car? Like it can break, but it's not alive. Or is it a creature? Is it creature that's alive and has consciousness and if so what does it want what is it why why is it why is it here well i wish you luck with that it sounds like it's going to be a, a very enjoyable read as well it's a and it's something point. that i can sort of uh, ponder upon as well and ask myself the go. question there uh, this evening or or later in the weekend that one for one for a debate i think thank you so much for having me no thank you it's really um, been enjoyable. And I want to thank everyone else for listening today. It's been insightful. If you want to learn more about AI, machine learning and search, then come and take one of our free courses at learn.squirrel.com. 